0: Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane.
1: This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program's Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at a reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 13th chapter, the 1st through the 23rd verse. It is basically the whole uh, parable of the story of the sower who goes out to sow his seed. We're familiar with that. Um, We know, first of all, that Jesus tells the parable and then the disciples question him about why do you speak in parables and then he goes on and he explains the parable. But the, the situation in which this section of parables in Matthew's Gospel begins, is that Jesus has left the house and has and sat by the lakeside, but such crowds gathered around him that he got into the boat and sat there, and the people all stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables. So there's the introduction now to the coming of the parables. But we have to ask ourselves, let's jump for a minute to it, then the disciples went up to him and asked, why do you talk to them in parables? And then Jesus goes on to explain to them, he said, because the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are revealed to you, but they are not revealed to them. Now does this mean, for instance, might might we begin then to to jump back into kind of a Calvinistic proposition about the faith, that uh, only certain ones receive it, and those who don't, that's because God doesn't want them to have it, and therefore there is predestination. Some are saved, and some are predestined to be lost, and so forth. That's not what it's saying at all. When Jesus says, but they are not revealed to them, which it means that that's a turnaround. It means they are not receptive to the faith. And so when you proclaim the faith in words to people who are not receptive to it, how do you speak to them about the things you believe? If we watch, for instance, some of the popular preachers on TV uh, or on YouTube, what we find is that they move toward a sort, in a way, they embed their message usually in, uh, in effective ways that are, that are kind of intriguing, or, are interesting because they in stories and in personal experience and so forth. And so basically, they're doing the same thing. And the question then is why? Why does language fail to carry the same kind of impact? that images carry, and I think that this is, the, this is not only the issue that, that we want to talk about when we talk about the parables of the Lord, but it's also the issue when we talk about the faith in the modern world. For the crisis of language is tied to the crisis of culture. In Rabbinic Judaism, the culture of the covenant was, being, was changed radically. It went from the leadership of kings and judges and prophets and so forth to the leaders of lawyers, basically. And uh, that when that happens, when you shift a culture like that, then the language that has carried the weight of the message before the cultural shift, oftentimes is its meanings change or it becomes incomprehensible into the culture that is now entered into the realm of, of human experience and human history. Societies change and cultures change. Language itself, if it changes as often as cultures and societies change, then it simply ceases to have any meaning whatsoever. Language has to, has to retain some kind of meaning or it becomes kind of a useless tool. It becomes like the Tower of Babel. Everybody, you know, saying their own subjectivity and therefore you cannot, in the lack of being able to communicate total subjectivities, then what what happens is that communication itself becomes impossible. Well, in the gospel, in the movement from the prophetic age into the rabbinic age, And into the, which is ushered in in some ways by the imposition of the Roman Empire and Roman culture on ancient Palestine. And the Romans, while the Greeks were famous, you know, for for literature, sagas, and philosophy, um, the Romans were famous, uh, well, for some literature, but also for the development of law. And this is a whole different story because. The law of the Romans developed were not the law that was developed in in Northern Europe, and eventually that's to become a crisis for the church. But here in Palestine, the Roman law affects the cultural life of the people, and out of that cultural impact on the people arise kind of the legal interpretation of the covenant. In the legal interpretation of the covenant, then the language of the prophets ceases to have the same kind of meaning or impact, subjectively speaking, to the people who hear it. And so the communication of the word of God becomes problematic. Now there are those who are deeply embedded in the tradition of Israel and those who are very much aware of the tradition of Israel. We see this also in the New Testament. We find the people who are most responsive to the preaching of Jesus are those who are embedded in the ancient faith. We find it, for instance, look into the early parts of Luke's Gospel and with Mary's Magnificat, which is, which is a very Old Testament, we might say, proclamation, a very Old Testament hymn, carrying with it much of the Im- prophetic imagery and the historical imagery of the, of the Old Testament. But for many of the moderns who were used to interpreting the covenant as law and not as relationship, as law and not as drama of some kind, well then the language of the prophets takes on a different meaning. It becomes, we see this within our own society. You can take a word, and you can see society change the meaning of that word. Where if you draw in somebody from the 19th century and you use some of those words with them, they have a totally different understanding of what you're saying than we would in our contemporary life. And so we understand then that language itself is tied to culture and that the language of the long haul oftentimes becomes an incomprehensible means of communication in the short term until society moves beyond whatever phase it happens to be in and begins then to recapture the story of itself and the story of a people. We see this in the preaching. This is what's interesting, very interesting. It's not the only thing that's interesting, but it's very interesting in the preaching of Jesus because Jesus is not using the rabbinic language. Jesus, when he speaks, is using the language of the prophets and the language of the Torah. He is picking up that whole cultural linguistic concept of the covenant with God not of the contemporary situation of a relationship with the Roman Empire. What he's saying is, I am speaking the language of the covenant, and they only can speak the language of the law, the language of the rabbi. And so, he says, this is why I speak in parables. Now, what is a parable? I think that, you know, we're always kind of aware that language carries with it imagery and that we find in some of the more ancient languages there is that relationship between image and word. We, we find it, for instance, in Egyptian hieroglyphics. If you look at the thing of Egyptian hieroglyphics, we see birds and triangles and people and all of this kind of thing. And they're letters. They're their spelling. We see the same thing in a more abstract way in uh, Chinese and Japanese characters that uh, somehow or other reflect image of the word that we want to say. And so basically what Jesus is saying, I speak in parables. He's saying to his disciples, you have been faithful to the covenant all the way through. That's why you reckon, that's why you know what I say. That's why you understand what I say. But these people do not. And therefore I have to speak to them in pictures, in images. So in other words, the parable is in a kind of an extended sort of way, a sort of verbal hieroglyphics for the contemporary people, the people of the contemporary age for Jesus. And that's why he is going to go into the culture, and we find this all throughout the Gospels, he's gonna go into the culture and he's gonna extract from the culture, he's gonna extract familiar scenes from the culture. And then those familiar scenes, he then can explain verbally But he cannot start out that way, or it doesn't mean anything to the people. I think sometimes driving along the highway there's a big sign, says, you know, it's a pro-life sign, it says, all life is sacred. And we all know what that means. Basically, the sacred pertains to the divine. All life is somehow or other tied up with the divine origin of humanity, the divine origin of our being. It is kind of the source of our existence. But what if culturally there is no God for someone? What if culturally, therefore, the word sacred has no meaning to them, except meaning perhaps intangible or untouchable or some kind of a, a special kind of thing. Well, that's not what sacred means. It doesn't mean just a special kind of thing. It just doesn't mean, you know, this is sacred to me. That means, you know, this is, this is an untouchable reality in my life, and whether it's a possession or whatever it is. But it doesn't mean what the word means. The word is connected to the divine. The word is connected to God as a source and the origin of anything that is sacred. And so what the pro-life sign is saying is that life belongs to the divine. It comes from the divine. That's its source. That's its meaning. That's its purpose. That's where it finds fulfillment. That's what it means. But it doesn't mean that if in a culture you have no God. Then how do you describe the sacredness of life? And so what you would have to do to do that, to, to communicate to a contemporary world, is you would have to go into the culture and you would have to interpret phenomenon that are familiar to this unbelieving culture, to this, this atheistic culture. You would have to find images of things within there, that you could use as a verbal or an Im- imaginary example of an idea. And then you would say that. I'm not sure exactly how you would interpret a sacred into a into a pagan culture. We don't seem to be able to do that very well. I don't know what images we would draw from it, which would not be demeaning to the word itself. But that's the idea of what we do. For instance, you know, if we look back through, through literature, there's all sorts of biblical imagery in literature. If we don't know the biblical or the religious imagery that's in great literature, then, then we don't know what to, something just comes to mind in, uh, where in, in Shakespeare he talks about, you know, look up and the stars are, are like patents. Well, what in the world does that mean if you don't know what a patent is? If you don't know that a patent is a gold plate that holds the body of the Lord, then then what kind of a transcendent idea can you get from Shakespeare when he talks about the patents, the stars are like patents holding the divine, and so forth? We just skip over that. When we we read Shakespeare, we would just skip over that because we would say, you know, well, I don't even know what he's talking about, and then go on to something else. But the imagery, the fact is, the imagery of our Christian culture, the imagery of the scripture, of the Bible, of the faith, is losing its capacity to be expressed linguistically in the contemporary world. Jesus, it was the same way. The language of the covenant had been trivialized into the language of the law, which became interpreted by the rabbis under the pressure of the occupation by the Romans who are structurally a a legal society. And so this is what happens, and so when Jesus then is going to talk about the great things of human experience and the great things of human life, he has to do so in imagery and not in vocabulary. In a way, he has to speak in a hieroglyphic for them by drawing the pictures for them. And so this is what he does. And then he says, now imagine, all right, he's already telling them, imagine this scene, a sower going out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the edge of the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on patches of rock where they found little soil. It sprang up straight away because there was no depth of the earth but as soon as the sun came up and they were scorched and not having any roots they withered others fell among thorns and uh, and thorns grew up and choked them while others fell on rich soil and produced their crop some a hundredfold some sixty some thirty listen anyone who has ears he might also want to say see anyone who has eyes everybody knows the image of the sower this is how fields were planted and despite the city of Jerusalem and the city of Jericho, Israel was essentially agricultural, as most societies were. They had to raise their food, they had to raise their animals. The imagery even of the agricultural world was present and knowable even to the people of the city. That's not true today, by the way, that the imagery of the agricultural culture of our country is almost totally foreign to many, many, urban dwellers within our society. And so we can't use bucolic imagery. We can't use agricultural imagery because it's unintelligent. Nobody no one knows it. We have to find urban imagery to use to say the same thing. Jesus had a culture that understood the process of the agricultural world because they had lived much closer, even in the cities, much closer to the land and the source of their food than we do. So it worked in Jesus's time. If we were to go out and say, you know, well, I'm gonna tell you about the gospel, and then we talk about a farmer went out to plow his field, no one knows what you're talking about. Take, a, take for instance, a really urban child you know, to, to a butcher shop and watch the reaction, the horror that they have that this really is kind of an animal that they're eating. So far have we been removed from, from the natural sources of human life, that urban life has taken on a culture and a quality all of its own, one that is in too many ways separated from the fundamentals, the basics, the necessities of life. And so a tendency, therefore, to, to create... To, to have a whole structure of reality that is independent from creation itself, something kind of brand new for us and something challenging for us in our capacity to proclaim the gospel. So. Then the disciples said, and we've already looked at this, went up to him and asked, Why do you talk to them in parables? Because he replied, The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are revealed to you, but they are not revealed to them, for anyone who has will be given more, and anyone who has not will be taken away from. And then we think, Well, this certainly is contrary to our whole modern sense of equity and equality and uh, all of this kind of stuff. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, if we nurture what he gives us, it grows inside of us. That if we just carry it around, it kind of succumbs to the pressures of the culture in which we live. And if we accept it kind of when we're children as resentfully, it just goes away altogether. And so we have now, and this is really an interesting cultural phenomenon too. So we have now, this kind of common wisdom that the church is just too old fashioned and that's why so many young people don't believe in the church anymore and don't believe in Jesus anymore and so on and so forth. Now, there's all sorts of examples to the contrary of young people who firmly believe and deeply practice their faith. So it's a generalization which is is not acceptable. Maybe proportionally, the the uh, the numbers of of nuns, nuns, um, non believers is greater than the proportion of believers among the young, but you know, actually, so has it always been. But it means that there's special challenges. There's certain challenges. What attracts young people to the church today? And a lot of it, of course, is experience and sharing that experience with their peers. We find that, for instance, in, in, uh, in the Damascus program and so many other programs oriented toward teenagers and so forth, there is a group dynamic to it, a community dynamic to it, which is an important thing. But what else kind of attracts them to the faith? And uh, a finding being, being deep enough within their own lives to realize that they need something and being able to, to understand that, that maybe it's something beyond what's really just graspable or able to be purchased in the store or able whatever, that maybe there is something greater in life and they set out to look for that. So there is a movement among the young, a strong movement among the young. Um, There are certain parishes where everything kind of comes together where there's huge numbers of, uh, of young people who are involved, young families, young singles, and so forth. So it's not fair to say, you know, well, the young don't believe. But the ones who do stay away, why? One of the greatest arguments for that is, well, because the church basically is mean. The church is filled with hate it hates gays it hates trans it on and on and on with this kind of thing these cultural phenomena of the contemporary age are not an integral part of the kerygma of the gospel proclamation of the prophetic and tradition of the covenant old and new And so the thought is in the modern consumer society that the customer is always right, and if this is what I want out of my religion, then this is what my religion should give me. And if it isn't what it gives me, then there's something wrong with it, I'm not interested in it, I walk away. It's cultural. It's a cultural thing that rather than grapple with the deep issues of the human person, rather than find our way through the tangles of cultural complexities, not only in our age, but in every age, that what happens then is to abandon the challenge because I don't want to be challenged, I just want what I want. And so there is a walking away from challenge. That's not an unusual phenomenon in our age or in ages past. We have had huge eruptions within the Christian world over the centuries. The famous, of course, being the Protestant Reformation, but also then, you know, the enlightenment, the disregarding of religion and saying, "We know, our minds are sufficient. We can do the whole thing, you know, with our own brilliance. Well, not necessarily so and so christianity then moves not as encompassing the whole society because culture defies us at every step of the way it defied jesus through the rabbinic judaism it defied it it defied the early church through through the roman imposition it the the, the reformation blew it up the uh, the enlightenment rejected it And now modern contemporary secular culture also rejects it. But inside of that, the language of God remains. For those who will not and cannot accept it, the choice, Jesus' choice, and the choice of many of the very successful modern preachers are the ones who are able to express it in image rather than in language. And I think that this becomes the challenge, the parabolic challenge of our own age. Can we express in image and in experience the language of the covenant? Or must we submit ourselves to the secular and atheistic cultures of our age? Jesus goes on in this gospel and he said, for the heart of the nation has grown coarse and their ears are dull of hearing and they have shut their eyes for fear they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and be converted and be healed by me. It's, uh, we, we could sit here and say that today. Not saying, you know, that, that the church is, has got the integrity of Jesus. But that Jesus' voice comes through the church and his presence comes through the church. But happy are your eyes. And then he goes on to explain the parable. So the gospel is grappling with what can, we can interpret for ourselves as a cultural phenomenon. And as such, it stands as an image for us. The whole thing stands as a contemporary image for us to understand the struggles and the difficulties of faith in our own day and in our own age.
0: Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM 820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. And recall a childhood memory of innocence and a peace that only comes from God. Yet, with our busy schedules today, many families don't attend church weekly or spend much time teaching their children about God. So many families now are burdened by financial and family challenges, substance abuse, and other worries. But there is hope. Studies show that people who pray regularly and practice their Christian faith are less stressed, financially stable, more compassionate, optimistic, healthier, and happier. Experience a positive difference in your life and for your family by coming home to your parish. Learn more by visiting CatholicsComeHome.org today. Here you may find answers to your questions and discover how Jesus and the sacraments will bless your family. There's no pressure or risk. You've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Do it for your kids. Do it for yourself. Visit catholicscomehome.org today.
2: Welcome to the Catholic Man's Minute. Men, what is greatness? Is it possible that greatness is discovered in being little, silent, hidden? What does that mean? It means to simply not be full of self, arrogant, prideful, and self-serving. It means to sacrifice ourselves for our family's sake. From the earliest age, our children believe us to be the biggest men in their lives. The greatest lesson they learn is when we overcome our vain ambitions and disordered self-serving and humble ourselves to love and serve our family. It is then that our strength and power is revealed. As our Lord said, what is hidden will be revealed and what is secret will be made manifest. We experience the freedom by becoming small and little. Our vocation of fatherhood needs to be one that is small and hidden. Then we will become great, and strength and power will be revealed by God through us to our families. This has been the Catholic Man's Minute, a co-production of Catholic Men's Ministry and Fathers of St. Joseph and their daily devotional lead. For more information on these ministries and our annual Catholic Men's Conference, go to catholicmensministry.com.